0: Good evening everyone or good morning or good afternoon whatever the case may be and welcome to another edition of the other side of midnight that very curious time between dusk and dawn which is now expanded to a full 24/7 where anything can happen and usually does well this morning we're going to be tackling a very very difficult topic and um To give you a sense of perspective, I want to call your attention to our news item in my section of Radio with Pictures. Now, you're going to want to follow the little bouncing ball here. So for those of you who may be new to the show and don't quite know how Radio with Pictures works, here's what you do. You're listening on some kind of device. You need a phone or a computer to log on simultaneously to our website because we have images and links and additional information on the web and you want to go to the other side of midnight.com the other side of midnight.com then you want to click on tonight's banner which says for saturday the uh, 10th of august searching for the truth behind racism and there's a very interesting and provocative picture that we're going to talk about as we get into the show tonight this is a, a very provocative image which was uh part of a very provocative show provided by my old friend Gene Roddenberry for a very interesting and classic Star Trek, which is going to come up in tonight's conversation. What you want to do is now, when you click on that banner on the other side of midnight.com, that will take you to tonight's guest page. You scroll down in the guest page, and you will see, eventually you'll see a little banner says... Radio with Pictures, and under that you'll see my name, Richard Oakland's items. Number one, the annual Perseid meteor shower is best viewed this weekend, tonight and tomorrow night, from now through till dawn. Uh, This is an annual meteor shower. It's called the Perseids because they appear to emanate from the northern constellation of Perseus uh, in the northern hemisphere. So you'll see them... Kind of peaking more and more as we get toward dawn as the Earth rotates around and we are facing the direction of Earth's movement around the Sun. Remember, we're moving around in orbit around the Sun at 18 and a half miles per second. So if you take the combined velocity of objects orbiting the Sun against the, the solar direction, against our motion, and the Earth's orbital motion, that amounts to a lot of kilometers per second or a lot of miles per second. And of course, meteors are these little tiny snippets and bits and pieces of interplanetary debris that are visible as streaks of light across the uh, night sky when they intersect the Earth's atmosphere and they burn up from friction, from the conversion of kinetic energy into heat. And the bigger they are, the more spectacular they are, and you can get pretty good at this because you can almost tell the composition of the little, you know, bergy bits out there that we're encountering by the colors. For instance, if you see one with a bright green tail, the green is because of copper, so it's a uh, interplanetary bit of flotsam or jetsam, or both, which has a rather high higher than normal copper content uh, the same with other elements for instance iron will burn with a brilliant white hot heat um, and basically those are the two things that are kind of out there most of the meteorized meteorites that we encounter are uh, iron based with uh, various percentages of uh, uh, other metals in it we rarely encounter actual cometary material Because that is um, ices, and ices at this distance from the sun, because we're at the Earth's distance, they warm up and they sublime into a uh, uh, vapor in in the vacuum of space. So you're not going to see those as consolidated objects. So the stuff we're encountering tonight and tomorrow night, this is the peak of the shower, uh, is basically little tiny flecks of Copper and iron and sodium and silicon, silicon dioxide, glass, uh, composition of the major part of the moon's surface and of the Earth. So now the reason I wanted to lead with this is because the story we're talking about tonight, the next three hours, is going to be delving into some very, very, very turgid waters. We're going to grapple with this imponderable racism between human beings on this planet now genetically we all know based on decades now of genetic research and DNA and all that the raw one in fact the genetic variation in human beings from Hottentots to Eskimos, from New Yorkers to uh, you know, folks in, in, in Europe uh, to the Far East anywhere on Earth there is much, 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 much less genetic variation between the so-called races than there is in the the closest order to human beings in the genetic uh, primate column, which would be uh, chimpanzees. There's more genetic variation in chimpanzees and between the widest divergent human beings. So where did this idea of races and isms and someone is better than someone else, someone's smarter than someone else, someone is faster or more brilliant or able to leap tall. Where did all that come from in a genetic population, which is incredibly homogeneous, despite superficial, surficial appearances of difference? I wanted to do this show because the last couple of weeks have been horrendous, piled on the last couple of years, piled on the last couple of decades, piled on the last couple of centuries. I mean, the human story is one, unfortunately, of hating the other, of doing terrible, violent things to whoever can be defined as the other. I want to tell you a personal story because when I was – I I kind of encountered this and it really hit home when I was 10 years old. I was living in Burrill, Maryland, in a little place called Lewistown, which was basically a Methodist church and a general store by the side of the road on the way between Frederick and a place up the road, up uh, Route 15 – called Catoctin Furnace and another larger town called Thermot now Catoctin Furnace may or may not ring a bell in your memory because I've told part of this story before because <clears throat> that's where the presidential retreat uh, was located after World War II after uh, uh, President Roosevelt uh, built it up uh, in the uh, mountains of rural Maryland and it is there that the president hangs out apart from Washington. It's about a uh, 40 miles as the as the hair, uh, crow flies or the helicopter flies, and a number of presidents choose to helicopter from the White House to the presidential retreat up there. Um, there were a few presidents during the time that we lived in uh, Lewistown that came riding in a convoy of limousines and uh, they didn't have, you know, SUVs in those days. It was just a lot of cars. And one of those was the Eisenhower administration. They would ply that Route 15 up and back to the presidential retreat quite often. And the reason we noticed is not because there were all these cars in a convey on the highway, although that was obviously noticeable even to a kid who was 10 years old, but because my parents at that time had a restaurant literally in Lewistown, the only restaurant and a bed and breakfast with rooms and, uh, you know, kitchen and all that upstairs in the house adjacent to the restaurant. And so we lived a kind of a quasi public life where during the daytime into the night, you know, my parents would be in the restaurant next door to the house and they'd be serving customers and, uh, to many hours, deep hours into the night. And, um, All kinds of customers came through the doors. Big ones, small ones, little ones, tall ones, black ones, white ones. And, you know, my parents served everybody. I didn't really notice this difference until at school, the kids started to call us names because our parents served, I mean, nowadays, the polite term would be people of color In those days, this is in the 1950s, uh, the terms were not as polite. My God, they were not as polite. But it all really kind of came to a head one one weekday afternoon when the um, uh, church deacon of the Methodist church across the street, which had this big kind of pullout on the other side of the two-lane highway from where our House and restaurant and bed and breakfast were located literally a, a, a doorstep from this highway, this two-lane Route 15 state highway. Because that's where the cars would pull off on the other side of the, of the road, the street, the highway, to park and then cross the road and come into the restaurant or park and come in to uh, spend the night in our uh, bed and breakfast. And one of the things that I noticed again as, as a kid of 10 years old in addition to the fact that kids in school were really being really really nasty and hateful and horrible because my parents served everybody in the restaurant and the town was not very um, happy with this and the, the kids in school made a lot of trouble you know you heard about the term bullying well. We got bullied because our parents were different. They, they talked to people, anybody. They served people, anybody. And their kids were made to suffer. But it really hit home, and I mean really hit home-home, because being across the street from a, a church, on Sunday mornings there would be church services. And, as any of you who have lived in a city or in the country know, um, churches have church bells, and church bells are rung to call parishioners to services. So, on Sunday morning, following uh, the restaurant being opened late at night to serve tourists going up and down between you know the d c area and the mountain area in uh, in Northern Maryland, Uh, My parents would obviously on a Sunday morning like to sleep in. And when we went to church, which was not regularly, it was irregular. It was into Frederick and it was uh, late service, you know, 11 o'clock noon, that kind of thing. So they would try to sleep in because they were up very, very late. Because when you run a restaurant, it's not just when you close the doors, but there's all kinds of cleanup. There's dishes and kitchen and tables and cleaning counters and floors and all of that stuff. And, you know, we all participated to some degree or or, or other. So we were sleeping in with our parents uh, when things got kind of strange across the street. The church bells, when we arrived in Lewistown, rang on Sunday morning like maybe a dozen times, and then they would quit. But the longer my parents had the restaurant in bed and breakfast, and served anybody, I began to notice very peculiarly that the church bells in the Methodist Church, the white Methodist Church with the steeple on the beautiful little lawn across the street with the parking lot, that they would ring longer and longer and longer. And I think one morning I counted the bells ringing 140 some times before they died away. Now, needless to say, because they were just across the street, neither my parents or us kids or anybody sleeping in the bed and breakfast, you know, trying to get a, a you know, shut eye time before they would got back on the road to continue, you know, up the road being tourists. <clears throat> you couldn't sleep through 140, you know, church bells ringing over and over and over and over again. I mean, it took like half an hour, 45 minutes. And I remember vividly – I mean, remember, I'm 10 years old, and I've experienced why my parents are hated by more and more people in the town because we served – one of the nicest terms in those days were collards. I remember this guy coming in one afternoon, and my mother, you know, in her apron, standing there at the counter, and he sits down at the counter. He doesn't order anything, and I'm I'm doing one something. I'm either doing dishes or I'm cleaning. I'm doing something so I can hear this conversation. And she says very pointedly, you know, and I forget his name, uh, when we came to town, that bell rang like ten, ten dozen times. Now on Sunday mornings when our guests are trying to sleep, when we're trying to sleep, it's ringing over a hundred. How long is this going to go on? You're supposed to be a God-fearing man. Do you really think that the scriptures would support what you're doing? And I remember this guy looking across this counter at my mom and he says in this southern role, ma'am, as long as you serve coloreds, that bell is going to ring. And he got up And he walked back across the street to the Methodist church. And it made a really fun... I mean, it was the first time I really realized there was such a thing as irrational hate. So what we're going to try to talk about this morning is the basis for irrational hate. One other data point. In the same time frame... There was a very famous musical called South Pacific in the late 50s, 1958, and there was a song in that musical called You've Got to Be Carefully Taught, and one of the questions we're going to ask tonight, is this about being taught, or is this about something deeper, something much more fundamental? You've got to be taught. From year to year, it's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to
1: be carefully taught.
0: You've got to
2: be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made. And people
1: whose skin is a different shade. You've got to
0: be carefully
1: taught. You've
0: got to be taught before it's too late. Before you are six or seven or eight. To hate all
2: the people your relatives hate, you've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be carefully taught.
0: My guests tonight uh, are Dr. Richard Spence. Because I wanted to look into the history of racism, and it turns out that as a, as a subject, as a title, as an academic uh, uh, piece of nomenclature, it's really not that, that old. Dr. Richard Spence is professor of history at the University of Idaho. His interests include Russian military history along with espionage, occultism, and anti-Semitism. His major public works include Boris Savinko, Renegade on the Left, Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, Secret Agent 666, Alistair Crowley, British Intelligence, and the Occult, and many, many, many more. Um, my other guest is uh, uh, Georgia Lambert, who has over 50 years of experience in the field of esoteric studies. As you know, she was part of the uh, uh, Institute for Advancement of Human Potential and also was uh, a um, – on on, on the staff under Manley Hall of the um, Society for Philosophical Research. So without further ado, let me welcome my two guests of the morning to the other side for a hopefully enlightening conversation. Richard, Georgia, welcome. Good evening. Good evening. Well, where should we begin? Because, again, as that song from South Pacific goes and as I was taught, Back when I was going through this as part of a family that was trying to just be human, we were all taught that racism is taught, and I'm beginning to wonder, Richard, if in fact it's it's not deeper; it's somehow systemic in in if if not the genome, in something that's been done to human beings over the centuries and thousands of years, because. I remember as a kid, you know we 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 were, we were just we we just played with kids until our parents, particularly the parents of these other kids uh came and got very upset and dragged their kids away so where should we start this? Well,
1: you can start at the beginning or you can start at the end and go back to the beginning. <laughs>
0: um
1: I, I, I think you brought up a an interesting point just a couple of minutes ago when you, you mentioned the fact that the term which gets bandied around very widely today, racism, is a recent term and and when you approached me earlier this week about doing this show and we, we chatted about this a little bit, uh, you know, one of the things that I could we sure of then that that racism is a recent term, you know, and I was thinking it probably came out in the nineteenth century, so I did a little bit of checking and I found out that that racism at least appearing in in the public sphere, you know particularly in newspapers, and, you know this is one of the ways you want to tell when a term becomes current. What you go is look back the first place it would ever appeared in a newspaper because that's often how new terms neologisms will will sort of enter the language
0: very very clever it
1: turns out that, that that racism at least in the english-speaking press is virtually non-existent prior to 1938 wow Be- beginning yes uh, that's you know that's about 50 years later than i assumed there are a few mentions i think the earliest mention in any kind of american publication is in a uh, a, an anthropological article written in 1902, uh, and, and in that, racism is simply used as this term to try to, you know, to categorize a kind of taxonomy of, of human beings. It, it's not used with any particular pejorative sense or against anyone. But where it really begins to show up is in the 1930s, and in particular, it shows up in particular in reference to Nazi racial, because the Nazis had racial policies, and they tended to use that term. Therefore, one of the other things you can give the Nazis credit for, if you're inclined to give them any credit, is essentially being the the large sort of popularizers, the people who uh, who really sort of put that that term out into public discourse. I think uh, somebody noted Trotsky in one of his writings in 1930 mentions the term racism, and there are a few others. But really, prior to the years just before World War II, the term didn't exist. It's now that one of the raises is a kind of interesting question. Well, where did it come from? You know, how did it come about? Well, nobody seems to be too sure about that. See, that's what I always find fascinating because. You know, it, it's what keeps us historians in business because we're always trying to find things that people think are there they aren't. And and there's something else. You know, where exactly does this term begin? You know, for instance, I was saying the term racism doesn't appear in the press. You don't find it printed anywhere much before the late 1930s. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the first time someone said it or it was used elsewhere. It's, you know, things – a word has to be enunciated before eventually it will find its way into print, but there's probably not too much of a difference between those. The idea is that in the 19th century, you don't find the term racism, but if you look around, and not often, you'll find the term racialism, mm. and racism seems to have been a kind of shorthand for an earlier term of racialism. And, of course, what all of that is based on the idea is that there are distinct human races, and that then takes us further back into something like the the 18th century. But maybe maybe George has something to say on this.
2: (laughs) Well, um, I'm looking at it from a little different perspective, of course. I I bring the esoteric perspective to the table, and we're talking about – racism, but the deeper question is that of separateness. Uh, If we didn't have gender or skin color or religion uh, to divide us, we would invent things. Uh, In the esoteric model, and of course this is totally unprovable, but the tradition says that um, those souls that couldn't adjust in other systems get to come here. And the great lesson to be learned here is to overcome separateness. And certainly, uh, even though the, the racism angle is fairly recent, you go back and you see all kinds of separateness, whether that be Gender separateness or class separateness. I mean, look at you know the British Empire Uh, when they went to colonize, they certainly looked down on uh, whom they were colonizing, uh, as did the Spanish, bringing Christianity and the great light to the heathens. You know, but
0: didn't the Indian caste system long, long predate British rule? Yes,
2: absolutely. Absolutely. That's what I'm saying, that this problem of separateness is a deeply um ingrained one that humanity's great lesson is to overcome. Remember the wonderful experiment by Jane Elliott, actually fifty one years ago, the blue eyes brown eyes experiment?
0: I don't think I do. Please, you know, remind us.
2: Ah, this is wonderful. I you can Google her. Um what a pioneer was a school teacher somewhere in the Midwest, and there, she wanted to teach her, her young students about racism, but there, were no, uh, there was no diversity in the Midwest at that time. So she came up with this idea where she divided her class into the blue-eyed people and the brown-eyed people, and she said the blue-eyed people are smarter They're luckier, uh, they're prettier, and the brown-eyed people, well, you know, they just try to keep up. In the lunch line, she gave the blue-eyed people the first chance at the lunch line. They had the playground privileges. Um, It it was amazing, and after a day, one day, the test scores of the brown-eyed people went down what and the blue-eyed people went up so their self-esteem was so attacked yeah. by being segregated yes then the next day she reversed it and uh now the she was you know wrong the first day it's really the brown-eyed people <laughs> that are are the really smart ones because they can you know, take all this abuse and and just come out noble. I, I mean, it was really amazing. And it was a groundbreaking experiment to see, especially in young people, how quickly that kind of attention and misattention um, affects the brain and performance. Wow. I, I urge everybody to look up this experiment. Jane Elliott, is her name, and uh, it was 51 years ago, in oh 1968, God. in
1: April. Georgie, wow. sure I, I can, I've, I've, I've heard about. I'm thinking for sort bringing it. You know, give me the whole story again. But if I, if I got it right, when she flipped this, you know, she went in and flipped the classroom and said, "Oh no, the blue-eyed people aren't special anymore." Now it's the brown-eyed people. The brown-eyed kids fell for that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not 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 as if based upon their immediate and recent experience of being on the, you know, dirty end of the stick, that they didn't reject that idea. But see that that brings up one of these things that fits into so much of this, you know, if there is something you know, what we're really talking about in this some way, I, I think would what, what Richard is, you know, again, I come at this from a different perspective than you do. You know, the the question that Richard posed: how much of this are we taught, and it's like how much of this is programmed into us, and how much of it is hardwired from the beginning.
0: See, that's my question because the longer I've looked at this, and the more personal experience I've had with this, I'll tell you what. Let's let's delay this because we're at the bottom of the hour. We've got a break coming up here. My guests this morning are Dr. Richard Spence, who is our resident historian. Gosh, isn't it nice to have a show that has a kind of a resident historian? I I find that very. (laughs) I'll
1: have to add that to my resume. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, So, you know, to me, these are questions that are very, very important to answer, obviously, when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland from the great American Southwest. The natives are restless. We shall return. 19.5
2: 19.5 to get access to exclusive 180 episodes. Membership cost nine ninety five a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought.
1: the
0: other
2: side of midnight.com Hey and
0: welcome back to the other side of midnight for the Saturday night, August 10th. Gosh, August 10th. Where has the year gone? We've had such a tragic uh, time in the last, uh, you know, couple weeks. Last weekend was horrific as part of a horrific series of weekends and weeks and days and years and months. And centuries it's you know there used to be a kind of a pop term nature or nurture and I think uh, uh, guys that we were getting into that just before we went into the break is this innate hatred which translates to outright violence is it innate is it somehow in the genes is it encoded is it part of our I hate to use the term evolution but you know, we'll stick with that for a moment. Or as in the song from South Pacific, do you have to be taught to carefully hate? Who wants to pick up on this?
1: Well, I guess I'll I'll jump in. Um, well, you could look at it from this standpoint. I guess we pose this question. Do human beings as a species have an innate capacity for violence against other humans? Is that something that comes fairly – I'll hesitate to use the term comes naturally, but does it come readily? Readily not to everyone, but in most people. And, you know, I mean, this is, you know, as a student of human history, i got to say, yeah, okay. Uh, the one thing that comes across, you know, there's all kinds of things in his history. There, there's beauty and there's art and there's construction, but, yeah, my God, there's just endless destruction. And, and slaughter and homicidal mayhem without end. I mean there are times literally when I've considered that in looking through history in a broad scope that it's like one atrocity after another. There are all of these, these beautiful things and these, these developments and insights, spiritual and scientific, that come along. But they're just embedded in this matrix of continual violence. Now, whether that is all in some way a lesson that was taught to begin with, it just perpetuates itself and perpetuates itself. You know, I, I've got to think that there's not to say that human beings are necessarily innately violent, but we have this capacity. We have traits that can easily be turned in that direction. And that sort of brings me back in a strange way to what Georgia was talking about earlier in the. Blue eyed, brown eyed experiment where literally in a short period of time a teacher could uh, build one group up and tear the other group down and vice versa. And this is the point I wanted to come back to. In a day, and they Richard. Bought,
0: in one day. Dude, yes, that's so shocking.
1: All right. And this is one of the other things that's come across broadly in history. If you look at it, human beings can be conned. All right. You know, you can't fool all of the people all of the time, uh, but you can fool most of the people most of the time. You can fool enough of them. And human beings can be conned, which is to say, they can be manipulated. And that's something else, which this whole idea of, I I think Georgia mentioned that, you know, really through most of human history, um, race. That is, physical distinctions between people, skin color, hair color, eye color, etc., seems to have been relatively – I mean, that probably, probably is often encouraged hostility as discouraged. it, but it wasn't a big deal. In the ancient world, among the Greeks and the Romans, it wasn't a big deal. They were aware of different peoples. They were aware of sub-Saharan Africans. They were aware of people coming in from the from the Han dynasty in China and the rest. Different-looking people weren't that unusual, and they were simply noted as being it. But on the other hand, you also have to look at societies which embraced – in which a third of the population are slaves, in which there is absolutely nothing – in the form of gender equality, which existed uh, within that case uh, very much, and, and you look at societies that are endemically violent. Okay? The Roman Empire did not grow peacefully. The Roman, Roman Empire, as all empires, grew through forceful subjugation of peoples around them. The Romans, for instance, greatly admired the Greeks. You know, I mean, what would be better if you're a wealthy Roman to have a Greek slave to educate your, your child? The, 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 the slave wasn't seen as an inferior human being, their status was seen as inferior. Yet, on the other hand, notice that, that kind of dichotomy. And, the they, Romans and they admired and, the Greeks.
0: And, and Richard, they could buy their way to equality with just money, yeah. coin of the realm.
1: You could. I mean, it was it was simply a, a social condition, and it wasn't. It was never attached to particular groups of people. I mean, it was probably you know less of a big deal to enslave barbarians, uh, and, and of course, good Roman citizens were not to fall into that. But you could, you could admire the Greeks. You could think that the Greeks really had a kind of interesting culture, and you wanted to imitate it as much as possible. But you would still conquer and enslave them. Okay, you had no particular problem with that. And it's, you know, it comes back to this question again you mentioned about the, the idea of what motivates hatred. And I remember a professor, I remember his name in a moment, who years ago gave me what I still think is a kind of interesting insight. So it basically went, he said, you know, the great killer in history isn't hatred. I mean, it's there. People often do hate, but, but hatred consumes a lot of energy and it's difficult. He said, the great killer in history is indifference. Oh. It is simply the kind of coldly calculated indifference.
0: So, I mean, the argument you know, is... You mean, you mean, you is that mean, you mean the old idea of a, of a few good men who do nothing?
1: No, I mean, of people who will carry out violent acts not necessarily motivated by hatred. I don't know. Let's take a, an example. A Viking raid... All right? Okay. So you're a a uh, Viking chieftain and you? you've got some and and mm. what's your economy? Well, your 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 job, you know,
0: so we so we're going to pick on economy. we're, we're going to pick on my ancestors. Okay, that that's good. Okay.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> it's You know, only one of the endless vibe, but but you're going to go out and basically your job is piracy. All right? So you're going to go out and uh, and if the opportunity presents itself, you will sack and burn a village, kill most of the men and enslave the women and children. Now, you have nothing. You don't hate those people. So your actions in most cases, you know, unless it's some particular act of revenge, I mean if you've never been to this place before, you don't hate them. They're just prey.
0: It's a and business. This,
1: this is one of the ways.
0: It's, yes, it's, it's a business. It's a for-profit business.
1: And, and they are prey. They, they are simply the things that you harvest to do it. And the fact that there are other human beings, and when you stab them, it hurts. Uh, you're breaking. Up. You know, that's that. It's not your family. It's not the rest of it. that's of no particular concern. You have to. Um, uh, yeah, that, that's even brings up the argument, and to a way you you have to inculcate that belief just to sort of live in the world, because.
0: That there's family, you know, there's, there's tribe, there's loyalty to those you're related well, to, and then there's everybody else.
1: Well, there's a simple fact. Any, anything that wants to live has to kill something else to do it. Okay, whether you're killing animals or whether you're killing plants, you have to kill other living things to sustain yourself. Life <laughs> preys upon life. And that's the way in which, you know, we'll say just Vikings, but, you know, raiders from the hills look on the lowland people. They are prey. We prey upon them and we kill them and despoil them in, in order to support ourselves. They're simply, you know, it, it, Georgia would say this is another way of sort of creating this kind of other, but you have to create this kind of detachment from it. And it's, uh, you know, I've I've heard people argue that you know, well, that that in a sense is is what the real world forces upon you. If you want to live, you have to learn how to kill something, hmm. and you have to and you and you can't dwell upon that fact. You you just you, you have to do it. Um, and, but real you know, those,
2: but, yeah. but real hatred is not detachment. It's no. it's fear based and it's very yeah. much engaged. Which makes it something else.
1: Well, I think you brought up an interesting point I was going to get to was, um, and I'm glad you brought it up, which was that hatred is usually a response to fear.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: People tend to hate things that they fear. And so that, so I guess the question then becomes, what are you afraid of?
2: And
0: is it endemic or is it carefully taught?
2: You know, in Eastern philosophy, um, the idea is as you evolve along the path and you become more spiritually unfolded or advanced or whatever you want to call it, this is a, a lifting up and out of one's own form. And when people are stressed... That throws them back into the old part of the brain, what we would call the old reptilian brain, the brain stem, where you have these instinctual survival um, activities, you know, fighting, uh, fleeing, feeding fornicating, (laughs) Uh, you know, whatever it happens to be. Experiments have been done where where rats that normally get along just fine, when you put them in confined spaces with too many rats for the space, they start turning on one another. Wasn't there
0: a very famous experiment in the 50s at Harvard that demonstrated this
2: overwhelmingly? There probably was. I'm not aware of it. But the the point is that in times of stress, whether that be um, internal within the family or environmental or whatever, um, people are thrown back into that old part of the brain, which is based on survival, which is when that survival is challenged in any way, it produces that fear. I'll I'll give you a a really good example of this. I had a a friend who was the um, wife of Carl Prebram, who was one of the, Mm. um, you you know, big in brain research. She Mm -hmm. passed away a couple of years ago. And uh, I was visiting them in their house in Radford, Virginia, which was gorgeous. And it was out in this wooded area. And they had this back deck where all kinds of animals came to eat. And uh, Catherine was telling me that uh, one winter, you know, she would put food out and the animals would come and they would fight one another to get to the food. And she she wanted to put food out because they needed it, but she didn't want them fighting over it either. So what she did is she researched the different kinds of food that the different groups, animal groups, you know, the raccoons and the birds and, you know, the weasels or whatever they were. And she put out all on the deck at the same time, these different kinds of food. And within a week, all of these species were eating off the deck in peace. Oh, my. And Carl's comment was, when people have enough food, they don't fight.
0: Interesting. Interesting.
2: So we're in, this, we're in this really strange time, which is a major transition for humanity in many, many ways. Um, our consciousness has gone from being only concerned with self, to being concerned with family, to being concerned with tribe, uh, to being concerned with nation. And now we're on the verge of the next big breakthrough. It's a time of stress. And a lot of people are being thrown back into the old part of the brain as a reaction to this stress rather than rising above it and embracing something bigger. Hmm.
0: Well, it looks to me, I mean, the United States is at the top of the pyramid in terms of wealth, affluence, social safety nets. People do not starve unless they really, 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 you know, are dedicated to starving. And yet there seems to be more fear, more hate, more hate crimes. How do we reconcile, guys, these two polar opposites based on Prebram's wife's experience with the deck and the different foods so every species had enough?
1: well you would have to maintain that artificial balance that doesn't exist in the real world that's true i mean she she was creating a situation that otherwise didn't exist and you could create that harmony but the the question might be whether or not it's it's sustainable um I don't know. To me, in some ways, it goes. By, and I'm not proposing this. I, I'm posing a question. I'm not proposing an answer because it's the question that sort of foolhood. Well, remember,
0: our hallmark it's, here, Richard, is wild speculation, ultimately grounded okay. somewhere in a science. Okay, so speculation goes back to this it.
1: idea of a of a hardwired capacity in human beings for violence against other human beings. I am inclined to believe that something of that sort can be expressed. That is that. Well, human beings, in some ways, you know, we, we form. I mean, look, you know, our, our our mothers and fathers are human beings, which you know is usually a good thing, but you know, there that can change. Um, you know, families can be wonderful, nurturing environments. They can also be living hells for some yep. people. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, that, that's the idea. If you think about it, our our closest. I mean, look, our closest human relationships. For most of our life are with generally with members of, of a family, people that you're related to. And, you know, I, I don't think I'm wildly speculating to say, say here that some families get along wonderfully, but, you know, almost always there are conflicts.
0: Try going to I, Thanksgiving I, dinner and talking politics.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, those those very, you know, that's one of the things I often talk to students about when they come back from the holidays. They go, well, how was Thanksgiving? How was that dinner with all the relatives? And you usually get these expressions, you know, some of them had a really good time. You know, in other cases, I mean, let's face it. Sometimes family gatherings are things we learn to endure, all right? We we do them because it's expected of us, and there are members of our family that we love dearly but drive us crazy, There may be others, you know, like (laughs) in-laws that you can't control. Well, there's another cliche
0: that comes to mind: familiarity breeds contempt.
1: (laughs) Well, yes, one of the things you're talking about things that you're taught. Here's one of the things in terms of in terms of family relations that I know that I was taught. Right, I was told this repeatedly. And this this largely came to the influence of my mom's family that I spent much more time around so they had more time to work me than anybody else <laughs> did but the thing they continually impressed upon me was that only people that you are related to by blood are actually your relatives. Hmm. So the guy that's married to your aunt Tilly, you know, Uncle Joe, he's not related to you by blood. So really he's just the guy she married. And all those people are tolerated, but they're not blood, and therefore you never take the side of any blood relation. You never take their side against them. You always side with the people you're related to by blood. Those are your only real relatives, and the others are just strangers who are tolerated.
0: Hmm. Hatfields now, and McCoy.
1: I they 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 never they well you no know, they got along but it was you know it was very clear in that type of thing you know I I think that all of the sort of you know uh, in-laws in that must have must have felt that to some degree there was there was not a great deal of warmth you know politeness um, but but that was an interesting idea and then that, that still sort of that still has an impact on me. And I notice it's one of those things, you know, it's not one of these rational things, but, but I still make that, that kind of, that kind of division. Um, You know, my wife's family, which tends to be such more, you know, tend to be a lot more huggy and a lot of other things. um, (laughs) But they they tend to be, and I'll go, well, you know, he's not really your uncle. (laughs) He's just your uncle by marriage. See, to me, to her, that's not a distinction that she would ordinarily make.
0: That is so interesting, to Richard, me, because cause growing up, yeah. I remember my grandmother on my father's side, my father's mother, had a boyfriend. His name was Fred. But we called him all as kids Uncle Fred. And for as long as he lived, Uncle Fred was considered to be intimately part of the family. Even Mm -hmm. though he was just, I look back now, just my grandmother's boyfriend. But he was uncle, there was no distinction. It was like it was seamless. Isn't it interesting how different families deal with this differently?
1: Yeah. So let's, you know, it's one of the things families are their own sort of subcultures, or as I sometimes described it, every family is its own cult. Okay, you're born into this cult.
0: Can I quote you?
1: <laughs> and yes, you can. You can it, oh, I love you that can, one. Every
0: family is its own you can,
1: cult. You can, you uh, can. Well, yeah. People have, you know, nicknames. You know, that's one of the things. You know, they you know, in your family, there are people who will call you by name that no one in the outside world would ever call you. Um, yeah. You know, they're a whole different. You know, they're, you know, and the other thing about them is that you know, if they're people you've grown up around, I mean, they know you and they know you And they you know there's a the difference between someone who's only known someone as an adult and someone who's known someone their entire life All right. so someone who has you know changed your diapers someone who has seen you as a naked toddler running around <laughs> and as an adolescent and the rest of it has a different sort of perspective on it than than other people and I you of them you know, and, and you of them I mean they become these kind of uh
0: Well there was the concept of the figure. extended family Georgia where yes you know the the the, yeah. the the marriage relationships or the boyfriend girlfriend, the it was almost irrelevant kids grew up in a world where every adult in their universe was a caregiver and could be comforting and could be someone you could go to and it, it, it was seamless
2: Yes, and and there's, of course, the concept of of blood family, but also chosen family. And chosen family is based on consciousness, not the form. Mm. And as long as the consciousness is focused in the form, you're going to have these divisions. Um, And some of them just defy (laughs) Description, you know, as I was saying uh, earlier, if we didn't have gender or race or ethnicity or religion to divide us, we would invent things. Um, my mother, uh, again, my family's been military since time out of mind, and my mother's family, um, when she was a girl, uh, officers' children did not play with enlisted man's children.
0: Oh, hmm
2: yeah. It was not done. You know, and and when you grow up in something like that, it can, you know, uh, follow you your whole life. Uh, my brother, when when he married, I could always tell my mother did not like his wife for some reason. And I could never figure out why, because she was a perfectly lovely human being. And uh, so one time I cornered my mother and I said, you know, what, what about her don't you like? And she says, well, you know tried to push it off. And I said, no, 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 let's, let's get into this. What, what, what is it? Um, you know, she, she's the same religion. She's the same ethnicity. What is the problem? And my mother looked at me with perfect candor and said, well, you know, she used to be married to a sergeant. Mm. <gasps> and I thought, Oh boy. I've heard it all now. So it was the caste system. It was class system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: She was of a that, lower you know,
1: the, class. To uh, you know, heart back into the historical aspect on it. I think again Georgia touched upon this a bit. It the idea, I'm not sure that that racial or ethnic antagonism hasn't existed in the past. I think it has, but it it, it wasn't nearly the large issue again through most of human history. In almost all human societies, the way that people were traditionally divided and controlled was not by race or ethnicity; it was by class. Yeah. And what you're talking about here is essentially making class distinctions. You know, exactly. Between.
0: But class and, is also genetic, in that you know, peasants tended to have peasants, unless they did something outrageous like married above their station, and royals tended to only connect with royals, so there was this genetic separation underlying Mm -hmm. the class structures. Was there not?
1: Somebody did a survey of the British, they they looked at England, and I think this was done later in in the 20th century, and I wish I could tell you, who, but their idea was that they looked essentially at the British ruling class, let's say in the Victorian era. You know the people who were members of, were peers of the realm, people who held positions in state, people who went to, you know, Oxford and Cambridge, people who ran the empire, and then they looked at the kind of general English population. And what they found out was that if you compared them on a kind of any basis, if you even looked at their skeletons, you could see the differences. So. Members of the British upper class tended to be four to six inches taller than members of of the working class. They tended to live longer, generally by as much as a decade. They had a different skull shape. They were, in effect, their whole point was that the upper class, by separating itself and generally intermarrying with itself, and by bringing in different ethnic elements from the continent, were effectively a different race. In, in a kind of physical sense, from the general population of the country. Hmm. They were much more ethnically diverse, for one of the things. So, you know, for the most part, in the general population, you'd had people largely trading Anglo-Saxon Celtic genes for the last 9,000 years or heard it came in. Whereas uh, one of the, one of the things about nobility traditionally in Europe is that they're very cosmopolitan, all right? So that's one of the things to notice about nobility historically. All of those dynastic marriages from one country to another.
0: Well, look at the whole like soap opera of of, of Megan and the Queen and all this. Right. They
1: have they have no race. They only have class. So <laughs> you you never really. Well, you know hope they have class. In, mm. <laughs> well, that class. But yes, but it's it's the class is it, the whole point. Do they come from your rank? So let's put it – I mean here's – here's I don't know, maybe not a famous example. Good old King Henry VIII or bad King Henry VIII. Uh, his first wife was a Spanish princess. Now, he wasn't married to her because there had been long and harmonious loving relationships between England and Spain. Oh, no, no, no. He was married to her to try to ensure that. In other words, you know, just pawning off one of your the extra female royals to in a dynastic marriage elsewhere was a way of sort of creating these these links between the between the two. But it it was a you know it was a calculated dynastic marriage. But it had nothing but the other fact, the fact that she was Spanish never entered into it. The fact that. You know, there was there was no distinction that way. Spain was a much more important country than England, so England was actually doing better by having its king marry a Habsburg <laughs> Spanish princess, which you know didn't work out, and hijinks ensued and heads rolled. But uh, nevertheless, literally. Was. So, but that's yes. You know, if you look at it, it's you know the the whole one of the most famous dynasties in Europe, the Habsburgs. You know, the Habsburgs married their way into power. They were only one so much conquerors. They made a series of very effective dynastic marriages, and they didn't care. You know, uh, Ethnicity wasn't really a matter here. Uh, it was political gain, and of course that this person was a suitable match, a person from the same class in society uh, that you would come from. I'll
0: tell you what, Richard. Hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. My guests this morning are Dr. Richard Spence. And resident historian, you can add that, of course. And Georgia Lambert, our resident metaphysician. I mean, we've really got some interesting folks tonight. And we're tackling something which, to me, is almost ineluctable. It's like, how do you get to the bottom and the end of this tunnel? Because to me, and again, I want to talk to Richard about data. I love data. But it sounds to me like the current concept of racism is, is really, really almost 20th century and forward. And it's very different and is being practiced very differently, particularly with the era of the Nazis. We're going to get into those folks in some detail, and Richard has a whole interesting historical lineup, and we want to delve into that. So all that when we uh, come back. You're on the other side
2: of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. She'll return.